Hello and welcome to Discord, a podcast to explore the intersection between music and theatre. I'm Adam Lenson and week by week I will be trying to figure out the conundrum that is musical theatre. Welcome to episode 13. people who want to write musicals who like you say don't like musicals or don't under don't have a good knowledge of musicals but and they always want to do something that breaks the form so they always come in and they go I just think we should just ignore the rule book and just do something fresh and new and I think that is fundamentally I think you really need to understand the rule book before you can break it because otherwise you don't know what rule yeah, I think if you're going to come and approach writing a musical that you should read, even though a lot of them are maybe trashy, those books about structure and musicals and, and, and watch a load of them and try and work out why they are structured the way they are. And, and yes, it's great to say, oh, we're going to do something new with the form. But until you understand what the form is, then breaking it is next to impossible. Otherwise, I think you're just floundering in sort of no man's land. On this week's episode, I speak to theatre composer and songwriter Michael Bruce. Michael Bruce is a musical theatre writer, but over the last few years has mostly been writing music for plays. Early musicals he wrote include Ed the Musical, which was seen at the Edinburgh Festival and at London's Trafalgar Studios, and The Great British Country Fate, which was seen at the Bush Theatre and as part of Latitude Festival. Since then, he's composed incidental music at theatres including the Donmar, the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theatre. Notable productions include music for Privacy by James Graham, which was at the Donmar Warehouse and then transferred to the Public Theatre recently in New York, starring Daniel Radcliffe. Les Lions en Dangereuse by Christopher Hampton, which again originated at the Donmar and this autumn opens on Broadway. Man and Superman by George Bernard Shaw at the National Theatre. Strange Interlude by Eugene O'Neill at the National Theatre. The Two Gentlemen of Verona at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and the West End production of Much Ado About Nothing that starred David Tennant and Catherine Tate. At the centre of Michael's career of writing music for plays is an enduring relationship with director Josie Rourke, who was artistic director of the Bush Theatre and is now artistic director of the Donmar Warehouse Theatre in London. Michael has recently written a book, published by Nick Hearn, called Writing Music for the Stage. Michael has currently been commissioned to write two new musicals, which unfortunately he can't yet tell me anything about, but he assures me are very exciting. In order to give you an idea of some of Michael's work, here is some of the music that he composed for the Don Mars production of The Physicists by Friedrich Duramat, directed by Josie Rourke. First off, I asked Michael, how did he get started? So I went to Lippa, Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts, and as a songwriter, a pop, pop music songwriter, singer-songwriter, I wasn't terribly good, but the writing was better than the performing, I think. It would be safe to say, after a couple of years there, I started to lose interest in writing three, three and a half minute long pop songs, and I was sort of yearning for something a little bit on a, big, on a bigger scale, something that I could really get my teeth into that had some sort of thematic development and, and something where I could say something. Like there was a reason, there was a story, there was something. To, and you can do that in a pop song, I believe, but I was looking for a bigger canvas. I think there is often a sense that musical theatre is nothing like pop music and that in many ways it's this kind of diminished, hermetically sealed world. And I already enjoy the fact that Michael came from pop writing but decided he wanted a bigger canvas. And I think that's what theatre can offer music and songs. It makes them denser and more meaningful than they were before because it connects them to wider overarching themes, philosophies, emotions and narratives. I didn't really begin really wanting to songwrite until I was early teenager. 
and at that point my ambitions were to be a pop star sort of Britney Spears like so it was Max Martin and all those um, guys who wrote all those fabulous pop songs some of Max Martin's most notable hits include It's My Life sung by Bon Jovi Hit Me Baby One More Time sung by Britney Spears and I Want It That Way sung by the Backstreet Boys and then it became Diane Warren some of Diane Warren's most notable songs include Don't Want to Miss a Thing sung by Aerosmith Unbreak My Heart sung by Tony Braxton how Do I Live, sung by Leanne Rimes, and Because You Loved Me, sung by Celine Dion. There's a documentary about Diane Warren, who is this sort of the most successful American songwriter of the 90s. She writes 12 hours a day or something in her office in LA, and, and this is her life. And, and I just suddenly it became, this is doable. This is a thing. This, people do this. She does it. I want to do it. So she was, at that point, it was her. When I went to Lippa and sort of fell in love with musicals I'd always listened to sort of Andrew Lloyd Webber my mom had like mixtapes in the car um, but it was sometime that really sort of hooked me in and I wrote my dissertation on Sunday in the Park with George but it was, it was well it was basically it was about craft and songwriting with specific reference to Sunday in the Park with George and you know at that point it was talking about like uh, Lacusa and Gettel and um, these American guys who were doing stuff at the same time and looking at where those sort of lined up and where the, the influences came from Sondheim following through all those people. And I would say there are very few people in Britain as interested and knowledgeable in both the pop music that was around at the time and the musical theatre that was around at the time. So someone who was interested in both Max Martin and Diane Warren, but also Stephen Sondheim, Michael John Lacusa and Adam Gettle. There were lots of musical theatre was going on at Lip at the time. We had a, a lecturer called Nick Phillips who is incredibly knowledgeable about it, who sort of, when I said, I think I'd like to do musicals, he listened to some of my stuff and took me under his wing and really helped support that ambition. first musical I ever wrote was a commission from the Arts Council that a local Liverpool writer had got some money to do something with the local community and uh, had written a book for a musical. He'd written lyrics as well and he approached Lippa looking for somebody who would write the music and the songwriting teacher, knowing my interests, put me forward for it and I got it and then I, I ended up writing new lyrics for the production and we got some students from Lippa to actually be a part of it. And we did a, a little showing of it with just the student actors at Lippa. And it was the end of term and it was pretty much just lecturers came. But there was something happened in that moment. It seemed to move people and it, it kind of did something quite special in that moment where I suddenly realised I think this might be for me. I find it interesting that while Michael came from a pop background, that his first musical at Lippa was written with subsidised intention with an Arts Council grant. Because even at that early stage, you can definitely see that juxtaposition between a commercial mindset and a subsidised mindset. And very quickly I then got the head of the dance department was there and invited me to go up and write songs for a show at the Edinburgh Fringe, which wasn't a musical, but it was a sort of dance comedy amalgamation show with songs in it. People always find it hard to define exactly what a musical is. So I like that Michael's early work contained what he calls amalgamation pieces, pieces that include dance and comedy and scenes and songs, but potentially not bound together in quite the way that a musical is, but still contributing to the kind of depth of different work that he was making. And then when I came back, it was sort of all guns blazing into musical theatre. And this uh, Nick Phillips, who was or Dr. Nick Phillips, I should call him. He's a doctor in musical theatre. I've lamented in the past that musical theatre is often not seen as an art form in Britain in the same way it can be in America. But I think it's no accident that one of Michael's key early influences was a doctor of musical theatre, Nick Phillips. Someone who really took the medium seriously and considered it an art form worthy of serious intellectual investigation and discussion. So when Sondheim was starting out, apparently Hammerstein gave him these tasks. Oscar Hammerstein was Stephen Sondheim's mentor, and Sondheim has gone on record as saying that if Hammerstein had been a geologist, he would have become a geologist. But as Michael says, as Hammerstein was mentoring Sondheim, he gave him a curriculum of tasks. First, he said, take a play you like, that you think is good, and musicalise it. In musicalising it, you'll be forced to analyse it. Second, take a play that you think is good but flawed, that you think could be improved, and musicalise that, seeing if you can improve it. Thirdly, 
take a non-play, a narrative someone else has written. It could be a novel, a short story, a nursery rhyme, but not a play, not something that has been structured dramatically for the stage, and musicalize that. Fourthly, try an original. In the spirit of this tradition and thinking about task three, Nick Phillips suggested to Michael that he look at the nursery rhyme Hey Diddle Diddle and turn it into a short musical. And then the head of the acting department there was also attached to the National Student Theatre Festival. And somewhere in all of this, there was that, let's take a production of this to Edinburgh. Now, I had no real experience in terms of writing books for musicals. Well, no experience at all. And it, for me, I, I was starting from a place where it was a five-minute musical that I then had to try and expand rather than taking a, a story and, and using that to have reason for people to sing. So uh, it, for me it was a massive learning curve in terms of how to approach structure and one that I failed quite spectacularly at, I think. And it's evident that musicals don't just require good songs and a good idea, but also, as Michael says, they require a well-defined and well-planned structure. Because only with that structure in place can the various different layers of music and song be arranged and given pace and motivation. And I think that Michael's learning curve is something that all songwriters and musicians need to engage with when starting to write musical theatre. And it ran at Edinburgh Festival, it probably lost money, so I'm very sorry about that to the people who funded it. But for me it was an invaluable learning experience and one where I went, right, from now on I need to work with a book writer that knows what they're doing. This is sort of learning the hard way. And um, after that, then I, I was out in the big bad world, that was my last year at university, so I had to go and earn money so I became a musical director uh, assistant to a musical director did cruise ships off and on for a couple of years and lots of other things we were based at the Theatre Royal Lincoln so did Panthers up there and wrote new songs for those I find a lot to admire about the fact that Michael having come from a pop background and trained with a doctor of musical theatre then went to the very commercial end of the spectrum travelling on cruise ships and composing music for Pantos because it shows that he's interested in being omnivorous and taking the work that comes to him and also not being snobby about the different extremes in the spectrum of music and theatre and how they relate to one another and I think already at this point you can see this collaboration of different influences from the highbrow to the lowbrow from the subsidized to the commercial that in the end forms one of the most interesting voices in new British musical theatre and then a friend of mine said oh there's this competition in the stage you should enter uh, it's a songwriting competition uh, to write a Christmas song for what was then called Christmas in New York which was a spin-off from the Notes from New York series Notes from New York was a London concert series founded in 2003 to celebrate contemporary musical theatre with a strong emphasis on the new school of musical theatre emerging from New York. Writers such as Adam Gettle, Andrew Lipper and Jason Robert Brown. I'd sent it in and then I hadn't thought anymore. I hadn't heard anything about it and I, I'd sort of written it off. And then out of nowhere they said, oh, you've won. So it came as a massive surprise and that led me into sort of world of... West End Cabaret and Paul Spicer and Neil Eckersley who were producing that at the time who took me under their wing and uh, produced a concert of mine at the Apollo after what so they did what we did before that actually was they did a workshop of what was Hey Diddle Diddle which was this where I got a book writer on board and we tried to salvage it and realized it was probably beyond hope um, there's still some good songs in there but it, it was sort of you've got a park I think things you do as a young writer sometimes you just got to park them and let them be and instead of sort of trying desperately to get that one idea to work I think it's much better to cut ties and do a new idea so we did that and then we did the concert Apollo which was a big success which led to recording the album of unwritten songs released in 2011 unwritten songs can be found on Spotify and iTunes or wherever you find music and then I wrote another musical called Ed which was on at the Edinburgh Festival and it was that thing that I was always in my heart believing that Edinburgh Festival was there for which was if you've got something special and you take it up there that it can do business and do do well and sell out which is what happened with Ed now it was a small venue but it was one of the it was there was a buzz around it which there wasn't around hated the Edinburgh Festival is a huge fringe festival which takes place every August 
in Edinburgh in Scotland, in which there are thousands of shows vying for your attention. And there is so much noise and so many people trying to get noticed that Michael is absolutely right. If you do get noticed in Edinburgh, if you do break through all of that noise, it is a sure sign that you're saying something that people want to listen to. Which led to a few meetings, you know, some sort of theatre director type people and that. None of them really seemed to lead anywhere. But what I had done was a podcast on the state of new musical theatre. A podcast about the state of musical theatre. Who'd have thought it? And I think it was because Grant Alding was supposed to be doing it and he pulled out at the last minute, they called me. Grant Alding is a composer and musical theatre writer and his credits include the Tony Award nominated One Man Two Governors. And there was a man from the Arts Council on the panel who I'd started saying this thing that Grant had said to me, which is he'd been composer in residence at the Bridewell. The Bridewell was a producing theatre based in London that was responsible for the premieres of a lot of notable American musicals, such as Songs for a New World by Jason Robert Brown, Floyd Collins by Adam Gettle, and Hello Again by Michael John Lacusa. And he said, that's a really good thing because you get to go be part of a building, you like work on a musical there over time, but just be a part of all the things that are going on in that building. So like write music for a play, just be in a programming meeting, whatever. So I'd said this, like it was my idea on this podcast. And um, this uh, man from the Arts Council was like, let's go for coffee in a week or so chat about this a bit more. And it was at this point that Michael's career begins to diverge from a traditional musical theatre writing one in this country. Because rather than writing new musical after new musical, this seed planted the beginning of becoming a writer-in-residence at a theatre. And most British subsidised theatres don't do very many musicals, but what they do do is plays. And by being a songwriter and a composer in that environment is like getting a pass to an alternate world. And thus Michael was able to embark on a journey towards becoming a composer of music for plays. And then out of nowhere again, I was up in Lincoln doing Panto and I got an email saying, would you like to go and meet Josie Rook at the the Bush Theatre? The Bush Theatre is a new writing theatre based in West London, well known for a reach that massively outstrips its intimate scale. And at that time, it was based in a room where it had fewer than 100 seats. And the Bush was known for its sharp, edgy, very contemporary new writing and had absolutely no background in musical theatre at all but was clearly interested in working with a composer and a songwriter on integrating music into its work. Would you like to go and meet Josie Rook at the the Bush Theatre and chat to her about being a composer in residence and I was like sure what's the Bush Theatre because I I was really green at the time I didn't really know and my most of my experience at that point was in commercial, well, it was it was cruise ships, it was pantos, it was cabarets, it was musicals. But what's interesting as an observer to Michael's biography is that he had quite a unique breadth of experience by that point that I think people should aspire to more. Even in those early days, he had come through as a pop writer and singer-songwriter. Then his first project at Lipper had been an Arts Council-funded and subsidised piece. He had been supervised by an academic in musical theatre and then on graduating had moved into cabaret, cruise ships and panto, the commercial world. So by the time of the approach by the Bush and Josie Rourke at age 22, he had such a clear breadth in his background and outlook. It's also one of those things that I, I, I think this is something that perhaps I am able to do that I'm quite pleased about. Certainly something directors have told me before is to have a a slight outside eye onto anything I'm doing. And I think being an omnivore and working in a lot of mediums and styles makes you have more of an outside eye because you know how one style sees another and because you have more of an overview of the whole theatrical territory. So by knowing more, it means you're better at seeing the whole picture. Because I think you can get sucked into... Isn't this a, w- a wonderful scene? Isn't this a great song? Isn't this a great dance break or whatever? And if you're if you're on the outside looking at the, the the journey of the entire piece and you're going, hang on a minute, brilliant as that is, it doesn't fit within the purview of this entire thing. Then you've got to be really honest about those things. I think honesty is really important because I think making theatre and making musical theatre can be very difficult, and very often people who are making it just celebrate the fact that it's finished rather than really looking at it with an intense and detailed perspective and looking at it the way that it would be seen from the outside and making hard decisions about what works and what doesn't 
and redrafting and refining. And I think something that Americans are very good at is looking at musical theatre with an intense critical eye. And I think someone like Michael shows that he has that instinct to look at something from the outside and really ask difficult questions about it. So I went to the bush and met Josie Rook and met the, the company there at the time so like many of the management the, the staff there and, and sort of we agreed that it'd be great for me to come on, on board and, and be there for a year. I spoke in episode 6 about the boundary that often seems to exist between subsidised theatre and commercial musical theatre so I think it's brilliant that Michael was able to move from working professionally in commercial cabaret and musical theatre to working for a subsidised theatre. I asked him where Josie Rourke's mindset was when he first arrived with regards to musical theatre, because I would traditionally think of the Bush as a theatre without much background of musicals. Well, interestingly, it was the, the one of the biggest things that they sort of pitched to me in that first meeting was the idea that they have this summer show that they tour around the country and it goes to Latitude Festival. And so it was sort of a musical comedy summer show and so they they said look we'd love you to come and and do this this would be the way in so it, it was a musical but it wasn't like a strict book musical the title was already decided they sort of gave me the artwork and the title of the thing and said here's the show write it and they put me together with a comedian called russell kane who wrote the book for it so even though at that point the bush weren't combining their traditional edgy tone with new musical theatre, they still had programmed a summer musical, which, although calibrated with a kind of lighter, more accessible tone, was definitely a route in for Michael in order to make a piece of theatre. And so we, we were working on that, and I was going in every week to Shepherd's Bush for programming meetings and thinking, I'm not sure what I'm doing here. And going for lunch with Josie the first time we, after I started, and I said I, I, I don't understand. This is just loads of people sitting around talking about, talking about doing things, not actually doing it. You know, it's that sort of thing. Send me an email about the thing, and we'll circle back. And the, and this sort of office speak or the, this kind of production speak that I hadn't come across at this point. And I said I don't understand. I just want to write. I just like desperate to write at this point. It's just, but this is good for you. You're you're getting an idea of how theatre is made. This is this is the process of, like from the other side, how you know why things take the time they take and the reasons why things are budgeted the way they are and all these kind of things. That I started to sort of get a much bigger idea rather than just think I want to write a hit show. That is still the the, the sort of centre of it all. But I think it's really useful knowledge to know how how that all happens. So as well as the various different creative backgrounds an artist can have, there is also a logistical world of producing and finances that I think it is essential for artists to know about, not so that it can overwhelm the creativity, but so that it can be the other side of coin of creativity. The picture I keep getting of Michael during our conversation and why I think he and his work are so exciting is the huge range of influences and knowledge he's been allowed to absorb, that he's allowed himself to absorb. He doesn't discard or ignore anything. And in so doing, he seems to know a lot more than most people in Britain that I've come across. No matter what it is, how much of a, a tangent you are to what you think your purpose is, I think it's all useful sort of knowledge uh, to have. And I don't think knowledge can ever be a bad thing. I don't think knowing about the history and craft of musical theatre will make you formulaic. I don't think knowing about modern trends in pop music will make you sound like other people. I think knowing things can never be seen as a bad thing, but that you just need to know them and then know how to take what you need from them when becoming an artist in your own right. Whilst I was there, I went through this horrible period where my, I had this, uh, my mother was very ill and sadly died and I had this really bizarre period where I was away and I came back and within a month uh, Josie Rook was doing this show at the National called Men Should Weep. Men Should Weep is a Scottish play from 1947 by Ina Lamont Stewart. It's set in Glasgow during the 1930s depression. And the composer left on the last day, the last Friday of rehearsals and she phoned me and said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm finishing off my album, actually. I've got this recording in two weeks. She said, oh, yeah, no, but what are you actually doing? 
and I was that one and she said can you come down to the rehearsal room now and this was I was just having my lunch on a Friday and I did and it was really really scary because it wasn't even in the National Theatre it was in this in my head I remember it as this kind of underground car park where they'd laid out the Littleton stage footprint three times uh, behind itself so it was huge and the, the premise of this was because Bunny Christie designed this wonderful tenement set which was on three floors and uh, they were doing this transitions rehearsal and um, they said right watch a bit and I only caught the sort of last hour or so of it and they said uh, Josie was like well I need I think I need you to write the music for it and I was like okay what and then whisked off to a taxi at the National Theatre, taking in the bowels of the National Theatre down this, for anybody that's not been there, there's this really wonderful corridor with neon roof uh, lights all the way down it, sort of feels like you're going into Willy Wonka chocolate factory kind of land, and then sort of in there and taken right onto the Littleton stage and said this is the set, because they were building the set on the stage, and I was like okay great, and met the head of music uh, there, Matthew Scott, who said right, uh, don't bother reading the play tonight because it was 9 o'clock on a Friday night they're doing a run through tomorrow morning come and watch that and at the end of that tell me what instruments you want to record so I did that and it was mentioned reaping it's a, it's a Scottish play which is uh, good for me in a way but it's written phonetically in a Glaswegian dialect so it, it's not where I'm from Aberdeen it's not similar I mean I could understand it but if you read it it's written out phonetically so reading the script would just be a, a minefield so I went and watched it and then decided, and we knew it was sort of early 20th century jet, well, 1930s jazz. So I said, right, these are the instruments I want. And then Monday morning, we recorded it. So I had Saturday evening to research, Sunday to write the whole score, and Monday we recorded it. Tuesday we mixed it, and Wednesday we were in tech. And that was on the Littleton, and, and for me, it was my first professional play. So now there's there's an example of just like a crack in a door suddenly opening up and being, you know, incredibly fortunate that that, that came about. This is a wonderful and inspiring story, not only of someone being at the right place at the right time, but also having built up the right relationships and knowledge to belong there. I really admire how Michael didn't allow himself to be scared or intimidated by the scale of the opportunity, but that he simply got on with it. He trusted his instinct and his experience and got the work done. But I also wonder if perhaps the lack of time was a galvanising factor that left no room for doubt or over-analysis, but simply meant he had to get on with it. I know that often plays and musicals take a considerable amount of time to pull together and to make perfect, but it also often seems that deadlines can be responsible for some of people's best work because you know something's going to happen, you know you have to deliver, and you just use your instincts and get on with it. It's just about just, okay, just do it now. You've got to do it. Play this, And that's one of the things I find challenging nowadays is if I've got too long a deadline for something, then I procrastinate and it gets closer and closer to the, to the, the deadline before I'll be able to really get my brain in gear to make a decision. Because I think fundamentally at some point, when you break it all down, that writing is about decisions. So it's like, at some point you're sat there, is it this note or that note? Is it this chord or that chord? What am I doing here? And so when you distill it to that point, it's about making decisions. If you're not forced to make them, if I'm not forcing myself to make them, then I won't. Whereas if you've got no time, you just make the decision. And that's, for me, I, I do write fast, but I feel like that's where the time is wasted in the not deciding what it is because there's every option you could have and i think one of the reasons that musical theater is such a complicated medium is because there are so many different variables that you can change you can change the song or you can change the way the song is orchestrated or you can change the lyric or you can change the way that it's performed there are hundreds and thousands of tiny decisions for each different part of the show all musicals are is decisions. And I think that what separates composer to composer is what, where you decide you want to go. So via a few unexpected quirks of fate, Michael found himself writing music for plays. And while musical theatre is often thought of as a predominantly commercial art form, Michael found himself working in mostly subsidised theatres, including the Donmar, the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company. It wasn't a plan I made. It was something that in hindsight I feel like has happened where what happened was I, I sort of took a sidestep into writing musical plays and suddenly realised how little I knew about all forms of theatre. 
and then without having to try too hard started to learn because it was happening it was happening around me it was happening to me it was happening in the shows so and the other thing that happened is that I was sort of going yeah I should really be working on musicals but I just didn't seem to I didn't feel quite like I had the right projects or I didn't have the right collaborators or I wasn't and and what happened is in writing music for plays and being a part of that world I started to meet other writers for a start like playwrights who were really good quality who were interested in musicals and we started to work on things together but as well as that producers I suggest to Michael that one of the reasons it's so good to compose music for plays is because of the fact you have to be subservient to the text of something that's already very freestanding and the fact that we call it often incidental music suggests that the music has to extrapolate from the content of the piece that you have to find the narrative beats, the tone, the style, the structure, and work from there. And what that does as a composer or a songwriter is it makes you very, very good at seeing what the style of a piece has to offer the music. That's what's so, I think, great about writing music for plays is it forces you to do that. And, and you don't have the luxury of not delivering whatever it is that specifically for this play needs to needs to be the sound you can't go down a sort of middle road generic thing I mean you can but it doesn't necessarily work but I think that's the challenge of and the, it's just basically like craft I think is, is writing music for plays is, it enforces the craft to have to happen you, you, you kind of don't really get away with sloppy technique if you're having to write overnight a new thing in the style of something you, you kind of have to be really solid uh, in order to deliver and there is no there's no hiding place really I think writing music for plays forces the craft to happen and I find that a really interesting dictum because I think in Britain we respect plays and we respect what they mean to us and we know that the craft of music has to meet them head-on I asked, though, if Michael had ever written music for a play which sort of contradicted what we would assume the music for that play would be like. Yeah, sure, that happens. I did Coriolanus as, with Electronica, which it just depends on what the ambition of the production is. And often that's led by, well, it's mostly led by the director and the designer, and you have those conversations. Sometimes you don't come across exactly. I think it was second or third week of rehearsals before I really thought, right, Coriolanus, we're going to do the Electronica thing. That was, you know, and there's often a moment where it just clicks into place and you go, that is what I am, that's what I'm aiming for here. So a composer of music for plays not only has to be interested in the content of the story and the location which that is set, but also the content and the idea at the heart of the physical production, as dictated by the director and the designer. I'd written this score in this kind of filmic style, uh, and we were all the way up to the end of sort of midway through the last week of rehearsals thinking this was the thing to do until we started running things together and realized it was not the right idea and I had to completely change tack and ended up writing something for a string trio so it was a completely different thing but it was the right thing because we realized it was more of a chamber piece rather than a big epic sweeping because swords and sandals epic something I find interesting about what Michael's saying about writing music for plays is that as a composer or a songwriter, you come into something that already has a very strong sense of time, place, character, location, and style. You know about how the acting is working, you know what the model looks like, you know even maybe what the lighting design might be and some of the costume design, and you get those anchoring points, and you get to make your music and your songs by responding to those anchoring points. And I think so often in musical theatre, people don't anchor anything or have any structure, they just kind of write pretty songs or nice songs or moving songs without thinking about all of those different reference points which you know about from plays. I think this is why adaptations work particularly well in musical theatre because they have those anchoring points, those reference points to respond to. 
And it seems a no-brainer to me that musical theatre composers would get better from writing music for plays because it's like a crash course in writing in different genres, styles, tones, time periods and in different work. And if you do that, I think it would definitely make you less precious about what your particular sound might be. And if you're less precious, then you spend more time using your technique and your craft to extrapolate the content of the story that you're telling into a piece of theatre that's engaging and entertaining and thought-provoking and everything that it should be. But you're not necessarily just thinking about the style without thinking about those anchoring points. You get to be in the room with all the people, like the really good people making these decisions. And you you sort of just, because my thing is basically with everything I've ever done is just being a sponge and soaking up as much wisdom as you can. For the most part, you're, you're sort of bedded into this team where you, you work very closely with all these different creative departments and even that I think is incredibly inspiring and useful knowledge so like you know when you have to work with a lighting designer and a sound designer constantly you have to understand like the language in which you're telling a, a thing and how you're delivering a scene and if you're underscoring something and how that and it's about understanding the dramatic arc of the evening so that you know you're telling the story through the music as well so in terms of when it comes back to writing musicals suddenly there's much more knowledge in my toolkit. And in making a musical, everyone on the creative team is responsible for the flow of the evening. And the more information and knowledge we have about the various tools and mechanisms for doing that, the better a musical is going to be. I tend to like to read up on dramatic structure and narrative things and all that, because I'm just kind of a geek in that way. But I'm sort of interested in it because I think in order to write a really great score, you have to understand the journey of the evening, the arc, and what, what is going on. There's no use to write a load of songs and hope that somebody else is going to solve it by stringing together with good bits of dialogue. I think you have to... It's your responsibility as a songwriter, I believe, in musical theatre, to have a really good stake in in the book. So that you... you I mean, I, it's, I might be a nightmare for other book writers. I don't think I am, but... I like to sit with them at the very early stages and go through really... I mean, if you saw the room where I work, it's covered in post-it notes, which is, you know, structure, scene structure, song structure, all that kind of thing, which is, again, that getting back to seeing the big picture. I like to be able to see it and look at the scene one and scene two, scene three, scene four, and how they all link together. For me, that's a big part of then understanding what it is I need to write. And I think everybody collaborating on a new musical has to understand at least some of the big picture and has to understand what everyone else in the team is up to with their work. Because as I've said before, I think musical theatre has to be a convergent genre where everything is heading in the same direction. So I think members of that team have to know a lot, even if it's not directly relevant to them at every moment. What I like about Michael is that nothing about his success seems accidental to me as an observer. That doesn't mean he hasn't had moments of luck and opportunity and good fortune, but what it means is there's very little which he doesn't seem to take a great interest in, and there's very little which he hasn't laboured hard to have a good working knowledge and a good understanding of, whether that's pop writing, musical theatre writing, classical composition, playwriting, dialogue, play structure. Michael has shown an interest and an enthusiasm for so many different things and he's made sure that he knows a lot about those things and he's taken on many different types of jobs and engaged with many different types of skill set and that toolbox he mentioned earlier it's bigger than almost anyone else in British musical theatre that I've spoken to. Having gone on this digression and having written music for plays and having worked in some of the most prestigious theatres in the country and in America as well, Michael is finding that subsidised and commercial theatres are now coming to him and asking him to write musicals. And I think this is related to the fact that musical theatre is going through a renaissance in this country where theatres and producers are trying to figure out what musical theatre can be. So the, the two projects that I currently have in development are with commercial producers who approached me and said, we would, would you consider writing this? And they commissioned you to write it. And that's a completely different way around putting a musical on than sitting in your room and writing it, which is what I did to begin with, try and raise some money, put it on Edinburgh Festival, or whoever raised the money, I never raised the money. I mean, thank goodness other people were smart enough for that. And desperately try and get people to come and see it and hope that somebody is going to 
watch it and think it's the best thing ever, let's transfer it to the hay market. It would seem, for me, I, the way it's, and who knows if these shows that I'm working on now will be successful or not, but it's really nice to feel like there's somebody in a position of authority who is has enough faith in your ability to commission a musical from you, pay you money to write it, and then seriously invest in developing it with the, the idea that it will go on on a, on a big scale. That feels like a different path. It might not be the path that is for everyone, but for me, I feel like I can justify taking some producer's money to write the first draft of a thing because I feel like I'm, I've got more, more to give now than I would have had back then. And I would say, of course, he has more to give because rather than sticking to a single medium or show or type of work, he has allowed himself to do a range of different shows, work with a range of collaborators in a range of different styles. And because of that, he has an awful lot of different skills and different knowledge bases which he can contribute to the projects that he's working on. Writing music for a play, you, you're forced to go into rehearsals and collaborate with people all the time. So it gets you out of your sort of own head a little bit and into doing something practical. So I think you can go mad, I think, sitting in a room on your own with a piano all the time. I think it's good, it's good for you to get out there a bit. And I think musical theatre is undoubtedly about collaboration and it's undoubtedly about knowing a lot of different things. And I think the more you can collaborate and the more knowledge you can have, the better you'll be at making musicals. I don't think you ever stop learning, which is why I wrote this article about why I think all composers should write for plays now and again. And, uh, and the basic premise behind that is that when you do music for a play, you, it's a very short time period you're given. You're forced to work with other artists. You're in a creative team. You sort of have to take a direction. You have to write in a specific style for a specific purpose. So in terms of the craft of it, it really awakens those muscles, it forces you to have to do it. Whereas I think you can get a bit stagnant in your kind of whatever it is you're doing. I think it's really good to sort of give yourself a bucket of cold water now and again, just to kind of go, here's, you know, do this and then come back and see if it invigorates your mind. And I think it does. Knowing the variety and range of projects that Michael has now worked on and the types and styles of music that he's created, I asked him why he thought there was a musical theatre sound and if he could reflect on the idea of why musical theatre often has such restricted idea of genre of music. Yeah, I think it's difficult. I, the thing that I've learned from writing music for plays is that I, the reason I also enjoy writing music for plays is that every time I come across a new play it's always a new challenge. So it's a new style of music to write in or it's a new function that it's, it's performing, whether it's songs in a play or a scene change or what it has to be. But like, he sort of forces you, I've done everything from bluegrass to rap to 18th century operetta to whatever, whatever is needed. So for me, my, what I enjoy and I try, I strive to do in the musicals that I'm writing, although sometimes it's not clear what genre it is, is try to give things a specific world within which it lives, which I think is something that Sondheim does. Um, for every show it's got its own yes you can hear it sometime but it's got its own palette of you know Sweeney Todd is completely different to Sunday in the Park which is completely different to Assassins you know they've all got these um, worlds with which and, they, and I was speaking to Patrick Marber about this um, we were just chatting about what makes you want to sit in a world for two years to write a show or direct you know and he says you, you, he said to me he wants to live in a world where like he wants to work in inside an imagined world that is a world in which he wants to live in for two years that you that you go well do i really want to if you really hate rap music do i want to spend two years of my life writing a rap music like you've got to i think it's it helps me anyway to have clearly defined worlds and with which to write and i think sometimes this musical theater sound if it's the new musical theater sound we're talking about Sometimes it's it struggles when it isn't it doesn't seem to be rooted anywhere. It's it it becomes a sort of generic musical theatre sound, which I think is something that I'm not entirely sure, from my taste, is 
something I would want to go and listen to. As always, content dictates form. I think it's important that writers find the story and then find the place that that story is set and the characters that are in that setting and write music that fits that world. And as Patrick Marber says, you then create that world in a way that is so seductive that you as a writer want to stay there. And if you as a writer want to stay there, then your audience will want to stay there too. But I think that's entirely different from people who already have a sound that they have in mind and they apply that sound to any old story or any old location. And if you do that, you end up with this musical theatre sound rather than people making musicals which sound like the stories that they're trying to tell. Having written musicals and then writing lots of incidental music for plays, I asked Michael if he has any more sense of what stories make the best musicals and why things have to be musicals. It's, it's got to be a good story, I'm not saying plot, but a good story, and there has to be a reason for people to sing. It has to have enough emotion in it that somebody has to express themselves in song, and I think it has to have enough of those moments of choice-making for a character to, to go through that you can have songs that pull them from one place to another place. And I find it really interesting that Michael thinks the best moments in musical theatre for songs are when characters are involved in choice making or decisions, because earlier in the interview he said composing and writing in general is all a series of decisions. So perhaps musical theatre is a medium in which writers have to make a great number of decisions in order to support and illuminate the characters who are also making decisions in the narrative. Well, because the thing is that I often say, what are they, why is he singing? Like, what's he singing about? Because like, and this is on a sort of basic level, it's not like some sort of intellectual treatise on why are they singing? It's like, what is he actually saying? Because I've got to write a lyric and it's got to not be the same lyric three verses over, you know, there's got to be a journey in the song. That's why Sondheim's so fascinating that, you know, people often say about his work that they're all mini three-act plays in themselves. That, and that, it, it makes your life a lot easier as a songwriter when you know why someone is singing and where they begin and where they end the song. The hardest ones is where or just a, they sing a song here and you go, why? And it seems like writing music for plays has made Michael better at asking why, rather than just taking for granted that there's music there or there's a song there. Everything needs to be motivated by a script and action and characters. And that means he gets to ask why more often. And I think why is a question we should be asking a lot more often in general when making plays and musicals. Michael goes on to suggest that when extrapolating a story into the musical realm, that doing so with a contemporary story can be harder. One of the projects that I'm working on at the minute is sort of set in the modern day. It can be harder, I think, writing stuff set now than it is writing stuff that's got a sort of the benefit of a little bit of time because historically it's easier to write I think and easier to have people singing when when you're looking back a little bit it's very because often when you look back in history each time period has a sound that goes along with it so it's easier to write within a like I do in the plays to write within a framework whereas when it's now because it's a bit like with history when you can't sort of see it until it's gone and, and I think in a musical sometimes that is a really useful uh, part of the puzzle is just having a, the benefit of a little bit of time. But that's what makes writing something modern day even more thrilling is working it out. And just because something is difficult, it doesn't mean it shouldn't be a musical. And just because something is unexpected, it doesn't mean it can't be a musical. Which, you know, some of the projects I've worked on, I remember I was working on one with James Graham, which we were developing in the National Studio a few years ago. and. Everybody was like, why on earth would you write it about that? That sounds like nobody should write a musical about that. And he went, that makes me just want to do it even more. Because that's... You don't ever tell me, like, I can't do something. And I think that's a philosophy that underpins the reason for me making this podcast. Because it was an observation that people think musicals can only be a certain thing. And people often say, oh, that shouldn't be a musical. And I will say, why not? I mean, I suppose sometimes you, I think it's always worth listening to what people, why people are saying you shouldn't do this. But I think fundamentally, if you believe yourself that it, there is a good reason for it, then if somebody says you shouldn't, then that then is stoking the fire, really, the flame of do it. 
I suggest to Michael that there's music at the most important moments of our lives. There's music when people get married. There's music at funerals. And I suggest that music can be a part of all of our stories. Music is a shortcut to an emotional center of something, I think. This is something people say to me why, like, you know, in a 15 seconds or 12 seconds of music you're going into a play, how, what the purpose of it is. And it, for me, it's kind of like a, a very, very quick time machine or whatever it is, location, tone, whatever you're setting up, that it, music allows an audience to understand where they're at and, and be in a position, like be in a place instantly. Like you, the things you can do with sound, you can terrify people with just a loud noise. You know, this is, this is some just physics, really, that music has the capacity to transport people very quickly to places. So music is about stories, I think, which is why musical theatre feels like it, an obvious art form, really. So what have I learned from Michael? Firstly, that it's useful to be an omnivore, to try and involve yourself in as many different parts of the theatrical landscape as you can, to learn about and work in as many mediums and jobs as possible that it's useful to learn about song structure, musical structure, play structure, to learn about theatre and producing models, that knowledge is a good thing, and the more of it you have, and from the more different places, the better. Secondly, that writing music for plays is a great way of learning about how to write musicals, about learning how music can transport us, inform us, and give us context and depth, but also about the fact that the pre-existing structure of plays means that they require a composer to be specific about the music that they write, and that musicals can and should be just as specific and have just as much structure as plays. Thirdly, it's great to know enough to be able to be an outside eye on whatever you're working on, not just to think about yourself, but also to be able to think about your collaborators so you can work together and move in the same convergent direction. Fourthly, Musicals are a series of decisions, and we need to hone our ability and instinct for making quick and strong decisions that are made for the right reasons and with the right thinking behind them. Finally, it's good to know the rules and structures of a form or a medium before you write into it, because even if you ignore those rules and structures, you'll be much better off knowing what you're ignoring. In an interview with the Paris Review, Stephen Sondheim discussing Oscar Hammerstein said, Remember he'd begun as a playwright before he became a songwriter. He believed that songs should be like one-act plays, that they should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They should set up a situation, have a development, and then a conclusion, exactly like a classically constructed play. And what Hammerstein and Sondheim knew is what Michael now knows, that plays have a lot to teach us about musicals, because the structure and architecture of a play shows us how our songs can be better. And the more we know about all types of music and theater, the better our musicals can be. Discord is hosted and produced by me, Adam Lenson. Our co-producer is Emma Clowber. Editorial assistance is from Daisy Cheek, Michael Conley, Jonathan Lenson, Sarah Middleton, and Oliver Soans. And our incidental music is by Elvin LeGrand. If you enjoy Discord, please review or rate us on iTunes and follow us at Discord Theatre on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. As always, our theme music is by Luke Bateman. <laughs>